0: This morning, our text is going to be in Acts 2. So if you want to turn to Acts 2, we're going to be looking at verses 42 through 47, page 911 in the church's Bible. And as you're turning to Acts chapter 2, um, just for context, you'll recall that in Acts chapter 1, We're given the account of Christ descending into heaven. And we're also given his promise that he will send his Holy Spirit to his disciples. And then early in chapter 2 of Acts, um, this is realized at Pentecost. The tongues of fire as the disciples wait. And immediately after this, you'll recall, what does Peter do? He gets up and he proclaims the gospel in a sermon. And we're told in verse 41 that about 3,000 souls were added that day. And this takes us right up to verse 42, which um, is really going to be the verse we, we kind of look at this morning. Today's a little bit more of a topical message than an exposition of the text, but verse 42 is going to be very important. So read along with me. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. What an introduction. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this beautiful day, Lord. It's cold, but we're here. And as we hear your word proclaimed, Father, we ask that you would open it up um, for your glory and for our good. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to begin, um, I want to throw a word at you and just see what you think. What do you think to yourself if I say the word ordinary? kind of comes to mind. Just think to yourself. The dictionary, you know, it defines it a couple ways. Dictionaries are good for that, giving us definitions. So the first definition they give us is that ordinary is of no special quality or interest. It's commonplace, unexceptional. Okay. Two, ordinary is plain or undistinguished. Three, customary, usual, normal. In other words, I think for most people, ordinary is probably not an adjective that we want used to describe us. Usually. I think, no, we'd rather be described as exceptional, or remarkable, or extraordinary, extraordinary. And I think this is especially true as it relates to our faith. We don't want to be thought of, um, you know, if given the option as we consider our life of faith, we don't want to just be the ordinary Christian. You know, he's really ordinarily sold out to the kingdom of God. Um, I mean, in light of all Jesus has done for us, we don't want to be the ordinary responder. I mean, it just doesn't seem to be enough, right? Need an example of what I mean? Well, if you look at the list of best-selling Christian books, you're going to see titles like Radical, Soar, with an exclamation point. That's in the title. Audacious. A life beyond amazing. Wild at heart. And there's many, many others. And and I think all of these titles, they play to that desire in us to do more and to be more. And going to the Christian school, I, I'm an alumni of Eastern Christian School, if you didn't know. Liz and I both. Um, Boy, this message was ingrained in us really Day by day. Um, we were told time and time again that God has a really, really dynamic plan for your life. But in order to realize that plan, you better be completely sold out to his will. Otherwise, you just might end up missing it. And then you're going to end up in this really bad plan B or plan C. That God really didn't intend for you. And so, like, I literally lived in fear that I was going to miss this. You know, that I was, I was going to be ordinary. And it usually boiled down to a similar formula that really just resulted in you just need to do more. Um, you know, going to church, I mean, that's ordinary stuff. That's really not enough. Sure, extraordinary Christians go to church, but man, they never miss a quiet time. I mean, you know, the Bible says King David and even Jesus woke up and spent time with God. I mean, that's what extra- extraordinary Christians do. Or, you know, just like the apostles Extraordinary Christians spend the majority of their time evangelizing unbelievers and leading people into God's kingdom. Or at the very least, you know, they're committed to social justice and helping people in need, you know, especially those people in third world countries where you do those short term mission trips. You know, that's really spiritual stuff. They they don't work ordinary jobs. I mean, no, no, no. They pursue the dreams God gave them. And they pursue them in faith that he's going to bless their pursuits. I mean, God meets us as we step out in faith towards him. Now, if it seems I'm being over the top, it's because I am. I'm intentionally going over the top because, I mean, I realize those things, they're not bad. Um, we should desire to start our day in communion with the Lord. We Each one of us should be seeking to evangelize people in our lives who don't know Christ. And it's a good thing to help those who are in need. But sometimes, I think as Christians, we can fall into a wrong type of thinking that is too typical in American Christianity. And it's a thinking that is so focused on our potential. It's so focused on who we could be in Christ or what we could be doing for Christ that it loses sight of just everyday faithfulness and how God uses us every day for the work of his kingdom. But what if I told you, contrary to what I heard all through high school, that God's will for your life is actually quite simple? It's really, really simple. In fact, it is contained in a single sentence. Look at our scripture memory verse for this week. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. That is literally God's will for our lives. John Calvin comments on this verse and he says, There's no part of our life and no action so minute that it ought not to be directed to the glory of God. And that we must take care, we must take care That even in eating and drinking, we aim at the advancement of God's glory. But I think sadly, we lose sight of this, don't we? I mean, I do. I can be so consumed with ordinary life that I miss my calling to glorify God in the midst of it. Because I tend to think of that other thing I should be doing but ordinary life is exactly what God is calling us to do. Let me give you an example from my own life. Right now, I know that God is calling me to do the following things through his word. As Liz's husband, I'm called to love her as Christ loved the church and give myself up to her. That seems ordinary, but man, that's hard. As Isaac and Adeline's father, I'm called to love them and bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'm also called to provide for them. As a son, I'm called to honor my father and mother. As an elder of this church, I'm called to shepherd God's flock. As a Christian, I'm called to love. I'm called to bear with, and I'm called to pray for and encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ. As an employee, I'm called to honor my employer and ultimately God by doing my job well. And the list can go on and on and on. Because the truth is, we don't have to look far to find God's calling for our lives. The problem is, these ordinary things seem sometimes to be the most difficult. If you're a mother or father of young children, loving God faithfully in attitude and heart toward your children can be really hard. (laughs) Day in and day out. It's a grind. But that's what we're called to, that ordinary faithfulness. I love this quote, and it, it's a lengthy quote, but I think you'll be able to track with it. Tish Harrison Warren speaks to this really well. She wrote a book called Courage in the Ordinary, and she said this. She said, what I'm slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in a war-torn African village. What I need courage for is the ordinary, the daily everydayness of life. Caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling than listening well to the people in my own. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy Christian community requires less of me than being kind to my husband on an average Wednesday morning, or calling my mother back when I don't feel like it. I suspect that for me, Getting up and doing dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the outwardly risky ways I've actually lived in the past. And so this is what I need now. I need the courage to face an ordinary day. An afternoon with a colicky baby where I'm probably going to snap at my two-year-old and get annoyed with my nosy neighbor. Without despair. I need courage to do that without despair. The bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life. And the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me and that that is enough. And who knows, maybe at the end of days, A hurried prayer for an enemy, a passing kindness to a neighbor, or budget planning on a boring Thursday afternoon will be the revolution stories of God making all things new. I mean, I need to hear that. That is so true. We need to remember that God's work isn't limited to those who dedicate their lives to the mission field. It's not limited to those who are preaching week in, week out in a pulpit. On the contrary, God has given each of us a unique calling where we can glorify him in all that we do. And it's different and unique to each of us. And we would do well to not underestimate the impact that these seemingly insignificant callings can have. My late grandfather, uh, Don Perkins, those in the family, we called him Pap, others called him Perk. He was this really quiet and ordinary guy. Uh, Like most folks, he loved his family. He liked the Ohio State Buckeyes. And (laughs) he worked really hard. Some might even look at his life and say, you know, he probably didn't have much of an impact for Christ. But for those who knew him, boy, they would be wrong. To this day, um, if Liz or I will tell a new acquaintance, like he was my grandfather, Don Perkins was my grandfather, people who knew him will still tell me, and sometimes with tears in their eyes, how much they love that man. And you go, you know, what's the deal with Pap? Why do they feel that way? And it's because he was one of the kindest, gentlest, and sincere men you would ever meet in your life. And I know, having knowing him, that this was the result of a heart that loved Jesus. He was just glorifying God the way he knew how. And when he died eight years ago, going on nine, eight years ago, That funeral parlor was full of people who had been impacted by a seemingly ordinary man. So thank God for individuals who are called to proclaim the gospel on the mission field. Thank God for people like Rick who week in, week out, strive to bring us God's word. But thank God as well for those people who are faithful in those seemingly ordinary callings. Because sometimes they can have the greatest impact on our lives. So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God and don't underestimate the ordinary calling to faithfulness in your life. Now, just as I think we have a tendency to downplay the importance of ordinary in our callings, sometimes I think we downplay the importance of the ordinary means by which God is spiritually shaping us. If you look at your insert in the bulletin and you find the question for this week, the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 88. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer is the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual, which means They are effective. They produce their intended result to the elect for salvation. Now, look back to Acts. Look to Acts 2.42, and you're going to see exactly where this answer for this catechism question comes from. In Acts 2.42, we read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So right here in Acts 2, we're given a description of what the early church looked like. We get a description of what the early church did when they gathered. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the word. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to gathering together. They devoted themselves to breaking of bread, which would have been a fellowship meal, a gathering, but it also would have included the Lord's Supper. And they devoted themselves to prayer. See, this is the template right here that God has chosen for us to grow in grace. Seems rather ordinary, doesn't it? And yet, that's exactly what we need. If you would have told me this in high school, I would have said, you're nuts. Because it wasn't extraordinary. But this is what God has given us. And this is why our gathering each Sunday is so important, because this time together, it's not just a chance for us to sing a few songs and get a motivational message. It's way more than that. Our gathering for worship is an exercise in covenant renewal. We are people of God's covenant. We're coming to renew that covenant each Lord's Day. It's an opportunity for us to hear the gospel afresh and respond afresh to be reminded the sins are forgiven. It's a weekly celebration of Christ's resurrection and the glory that awaits us. So by setting aside a day each week to worship, we actually participate in a reality that we've already entered God's rest through Christ Jesus. It's a break from the toils of the world. And we're realizing that one day this rest will happen completely in the new heavens, in the new earth. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we get a foretaste of the heavenly banquet to come. You see, in worship, we're not just meeting with the body of Christ together, but we're meeting with God himself. Or to say it more accurately, God is meeting with us. We don't summon him. He summons us. So when the church gathers together, she is communing with the living, holy, sovereign God of the universe. How ordinary is that? God meets us here. It's hard to keep that in our minds, isn't it, week after week. It's hard to remember the gravity of that. A few weeks ago, Rick made, a, I think it was a really excellent point in his sermon. He said, you know, come this Tuesday, you may not remember what this sermon's about but that doesn't mean it was ineffective. You know, eight out of ten times you may come and not feel something, but that doesn't mean you didn't need it. You know, he said, I don't remember what I ate for breakfast on Wednesday, but guess what? My body needed it. You see, God knows what we need, and he will be faithful to provide it to us as we submit ourselves to his means of grace week in and week out. It reminds me of a story I read a few years ago about the basketball player Kobe Bryant. If you guys know who Kobe Bryant was, he was an excellent NBA basketball player. And the story was told by an athletic trainer during the London Olympics. And this athletic trainer had been asked to work with the USA basketball team. And in the story, he recalls where he gets his phone call at 4.15 a.m. from Kobe Bryant. And Kobe had asked him to come help him with doing some conditioning work in the gym. And so the trainer was like, this is great, man. I get a chance to work out with Kobe Bryant. It was 4.15 a.m., you know. And the idea was that this is Team USA. They're going to win anyway. There wasn't this sense of they really got to work hard. So he gets up and he goes to the gym, but he recounts the story and his surprise because he said, I arrive at the gym and I'm arrived to see that Kobe had already been working out alone. He said he was drenched in sweat like he had gotten out of a swimming pool. And he said they proceeded at 4.30 in the morning to do another hour and 15 minutes of conditioning. He said then they went into the weight room for another hour. And then he said Kobe went back into the gym. It was doing shooting drills and stuff. At that point, the athletic trainer left. He said Kobe did his own personal workout, aside from the team workouts, from approximately 4 a.m. to 11 a.m. on his own. And the point of the story was simply to say, you know, no wonder Kobe Bryant is considered one of the greatest in the NBA of all time. He put in the work. He was doing what other people weren't willing to do. But what I think is interesting about the story is I think it's easy to overlook that Kobe was doing what would be considered kind of ordinary things. He wouldn't leave the gym until he made 800 jump shots. Well, he already knows how to shoot. He's Kobe Bryant. But he was committed to the fundamentals. He was committing to doing those ordinary things other people weren't willing to do because he knew in the end that was what was going to make him great. Now, analogies break down, but you can see the parallel. It's the ordinary things that God uses in our lives to bring the sanctification we need in our hearts to conform us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. So, with this in mind, To kind of conclude the sermon, I want to take just a few minutes to think about what we do each Sunday. Um, Why do we do specific things we do and why are they important? Are they just the tradition that's been handed down to us? Or is there actually some meaning to them? Because they may seem ordinary on the surface, but I think when you inspect them a little more closely, you're going to see that they're actually quite extraordinary. So the call to worship... Why do we begin our services with a call to worship? I mean, some might think it's just a way of letting people know the service is about to begin, right? Um, In other words, stop talking, have a seat, we're going to start singing. But in reality, the call to worship is actually this very, very sacred thing. So think about the first question and answer of the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? You guys remember it? To glorify God. And enjoy him forever. In other words, we're created to worship God. And he's absolutely worthy of that worship. We worship him because he deserves to be worshipped. In fact, each moment of every day belongs to God and should be lived in submission to his lordship, to his honor and glory. Everything you do, whether you eat or drink, due to the glory of God. But God has also called us together to gather and give him worship corporately as a church. And we see this pattern in creation itself. What does God do with the seventh day? He creates everything and then on the seventh day, he sets it apart to be holy and to rest. So in the call to worship, what's happening is we're first and foremost, we're acknowledging that God is worthy of worship. That's why we read something from scripture that speaks to his his glory. And since this is the case, if he's worthy of worship, what does that mean of those who he created? It means we have a duty as his creatures to give him honor and glory. But the sad reality is, I mean, most people today are not in a church worshiping God. Most people today are doing something else. And if we are honest with ourselves, we wouldn't be either if it weren't for God's grace so if that's true if we too would not be here if it weren't for God loving us what does that say about this worship we're doing right now it says that it's an incredible privilege because we have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. The fact that we have any desire at all to gather and worship is a testimony to His great love and kindness. So because this is not something we would choose on our own. This is something we should marvel in. This is something we should rejoice in. And we should also recognize that when we do the call to worship, it's an opportunity for us to look forward and hope to that time when all creation will join together in praise and thanksgiving to God. It's a time that we, for us to remember there there will come a day where every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord of all. That's why we have a call to worship. Because God is worthy of our worship and it is an incredible privilege for us to give it to Him. What about prayer? I think prayer is something we're more familiar with. So it's probably easier to understand why we would pray. Again, the shorter catechism Question 98 says, what is prayer? It says, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things that are agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. And I remember the first time I came to Tri-State Community Church, maybe some of you will as well, I remember coming and just being overwhelmed by the amount and length of prayer. Um, I remember thinking, wow. They take prayer really seriously, (laughs) Tri-State Community Church. And at first, I think I was just, I was honestly just intimidated by it because it wasn't something, I just wasn't used to it. I was not used to that kind of really intense prayer. But now, honestly, it's something that I've really come to cherish. And as I've visited other churches that don't do that, I really feel like there's something lacking and missing. In our directory of public worship, the ARP has something called a directory of public worship that guides the way worship ought to be conducted. You're going to read that those who lead the congregation in prayer give voice to the prayers of the whole congregation. Therefore, careful thought and preparation should go into such prayer. And I can see now that's exactly what Rick is doing when he's bringing us the pastoral prayer. He's not taking it lightly. He's taking it very seriously, and he's putting a lot of thought and consideration into it. And it's actually something I try to do myself when I have opportunity to pray. As a matter of fact, I am way more intimidated by offering the prayer than I am by offering a sermon. Because I find it to be this very solemn and sacred thing. Not that presenting the Word of God isn't, but um, it's something that we shouldn't take lightly. So in prayer, God is not just inviting us into his presence he's actually providing us a means to heal our souls think of that he's giving us a means to heal our souls he's inviting us like a child like children to a father to cast our burdens our anxieties to cast our fears on him because he's the only one who can bear them he also calls us to confess our sin and then receive pardon what a privilege that we get to come into the presence of God Almighty with our cares and concerns and have sins forgiven. Charles Spurgeon says this about prayer. He says, true prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. I think that part's kind of funny. Nor a vocal performance. It is far deeper than that. It is a spiritual transaction with the very creator of heaven and earth. So, challenge this. I challenge myself. Consider that each Sunday. Strive to participate in the prayers throughout the service. What about singing? So we've done the call to worship, prayer, singing. You know, like prayer, singing is an element of worship. I think we kind of can wrap our minds around it. It's something we understand. We recognize that it's a means of praising and worshiping God. Sometimes we limit worship to just singing. This whole service is an act of worship before God. But singing is also something we see modeled throughout all of Scripture. The Israelites go through the Red Sea. There's a song. Uh, the Psalms are full of songs. If you go to the New Testament, Mary is, receives word about Jesus. There's a song. So something we see uh, singing is something we see throughout Scripture. It's a way of thanking God for what He's done. It's a means for us to lament. So it's a means for us to express sorrow and grief, and it's also a means for us to declare who God is and what He's done. And so when we choose songs here at Tri-State Community Church, we try to keep those themes in mind. Um, for instance, think of the song we just sang before the sermon, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The song, you may not know this, is taken almost word for word from Revelation chapter one, 21, chapter 21. And in it, what are we doing? We're singing a truth about who God is. And then we're saying, okay, in light of who God is, we can have confidence then. And what he'll do. Because of who he is. So just the second verse here. If you just look at the second verse it says. And he who is seated on the throne. Said I'm making all things new. He said it's finished. Hear these words. They're trustworthy. They're true. He is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. And to the thirsty he will give water. From a river with no end. That's a declaration of who he is Now. We can sing, wipe every tear from our eye. Death will be no more. So when we sing as a church, what we're doing is we're actually confessing that we believe it to be true. We're singing these words and saying, we believe this to be true. We believe this to be reality. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're actually confronting our doubts. We're confronting our unbelief with the reality of who God is. So we're saying, look, I have these doubts. I have these anxieties. But this is who God is. And in light of that, it challenges and actually comforts our hearts. That's why we sing. Preaching the reading of God's word. You know, people today are so desperate to hear God speak. To hear them speak. To hear Him speak to them. They want a word from the Lord. And earlier I talked about that Christian bookseller list and how many of the books are about extraordinary lives. Well, many of the books are also about hearing God speak. That's probably right there with Extraordinary Living as the most popular type of book. And I remember reading this article some time ago called The Morning I Heard the Voice of God. And it was written by John Piper, Pastor John Piper. And in it, he tells this really wonderful experience he had one morning where God actually spoke to him. Literally, no doubts about it. He explains this experience in the article. It's this very personal description of what he experienced. It's very moving. And he says, after discussing, discussing the nature of how he heard God speak to him, he says, if you, if you would like to hear the very same words I heard on the couch that morning in northern Minnesota, he said, read Psalm 66, verses 5 through 7. He says, that's where I heard them. Oh, how precious is the Bible? It is the Word of God. You see what happened there? Piper's hitting on this really important truth. He's saying, we don't need to seek an external Word from the Lord because we have His Word. Ordinary. When the Word of God is read in public worship, God speaks directly to His people and we can rest assured it will accomplish its intended goal. The larger catechism says, The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightenment, convincing, and humbling sinners. Driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ. Conforms them to his image. Subdues them to his will. Strengthens them against temptation and corruption Builds them up in grace. Establishes their heart and holiness and comfort through faith into salvation. This is why preaching of God's words is central to what we do at Tri-State Community Church. We need to hear God speak more than we need to hear anybody else speak. It's the primary means of which we receive grace. God's word convicts us. It instructs us. It comforts us. It assures us. And in preaching... What happens is we're reminded of what Christ has done for us. And then what happens? We respond then in faith and repentance. It causes our hearts to respond in faith and repentance as we're reminded of our union with Christ and all the benefits that means. That's preaching. And lastly, what about this thing called the benediction? The last element of worship we want to talk about is the benediction. and The word benediction simply means the bestowing of a blessing. So to give a benediction is to give a bestowing, or to bestow a blessing. It's an official declaration from God himself. So when that benediction is proclaimed, it's a benediction not from the messenger, but from God himself to his people. And this, of course, is something we see throughout scripture. So for instance, Old Testament, Melchizedek blessed Abraham in the name of the Lord, Isaac blesses Jacob, Jacob blesses his sons and the sons of Joseph. It's Sinai, God-appointed priests to bless the whole people of God. In the New Testament, Jesus gives a blessing at his ascension, and then all, almost all the New Testament epistles close with a pronouncement of blessing. And at first glance, it may not seem like a big deal. If you're like me, you've probably listened to a lot of benedictions and not thought much about them and thought, okay. But let me challenge this view with these words from Pastor Derek Thomas, who is an associate Reformed Presbyterian minister. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you understand? Of course you do. If you're a Christian, you understand all too well. But Jesus uttered these words so that you and I will never have to utter those words. Ever, ever, ever. But on that day of judgment, the wrath of God will never alight upon me because my sin has been dealt with. Justice has been met to the full. It has been satisfied in the obedience and substitution of the Son. He died in my place. He took the wrath so that I can receive grace. And he says at the end of a service of worship, there's a benediction. If you don't have a benediction at the end of your worship service... Find another one. Wow. (laughs) He takes this seriously. It's vitally important theologically and experientially. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. May he give you wholeness, integration, a sense of purpose. And that's not what Jesus... At 3 o'clock on that Friday afternoon, he heard something else. The Lord crush you and push you away. The frown of God's holiness come down upon you and give you hell. That's what he heard. He got hell so that we could get shalom, peace, and benediction, blessing. That's the assurance at the end of every worship service. We go forth with a peace of God protecting us. The substitutionary, atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ that satisfies divine justice surrounds me every moment of the day, now and forever, throughout all eternity. Makes you think a little more about that benediction. It's really powerful. We are blessed because he was cursed. So it's not something we take lightly. So as we close, I think the challenge... And it's really a challenge for myself is not to lose sight of God in the seemingly ordinary things. He's always at work. Glorify him in all that you do, no matter how mundane the task may seem. And finally, trust that he's sanctifying and conforming you into the image of the Son. Trust that he's sanctifying and conforming us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ each and every Lord's Day through these ordinary means let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that even in what seems to be the ordinary aspects of life, um, you're working in us for your glory and for our good. And Lord, now as as we conclude, we ask that you would would really uh, impart these things to our hearts. Challenge us, Lord, to consider you in all we do each and every day. And trust that you are working in us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. And we ask this in His name. Amen.